We are going to continue our series on the book of First Corinthians. I'm not sure if we'll do both Corinthian letters in this series. It'll take a little while if we do. We might do that, break over, over Easter and keep going into Second Corinthians. We shall see, uh, because there's so much in here. So if you remember from last week, we uh, got an overview of the, the, the city and what Corinth was back then. And we saw that it wasn't that dissimilar to what we live in today. Uh, and some of the things that, uh, that were in the city and in the culture are not entirely dissimilar to what we have in our own culture today in, in the Western world. And um, we, I call it Crazy Corinth because there were so many things going around, going on in that city, and so many things with the church as a result. And you see that these letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, they have an occasion, right? He's trying to deal with some problems that uh, he has heard about in this church that he planted. And you can see all the work that he did in uh, the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 18. You can see a lot of it. And uh, we know pretty well that he wrote this letter from another church. He was in Ephesus in about 54, 55, when he wrote this letter back to the Corinthians, okay? And we can, as we saw last week, we can pinpoint uh, him in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Uh, we've got some stuff from archaeology that helps us do that. So we know exactly when he was there and when he walked into the city and when he met this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and when he started to to work to build this church. So he's writing to them, and he's going to address several different things, several different problems, things that he's heard, things that he wants them to know. He's going to correct them. He's going to argue with them. He's going to discipline them. He does a lot of different things in these two letters. So it's always helpful to understand, okay, who's the, who's the audience? And uh, Wednesday nights, we're doing a video series on the uh, city of Corinth. And you go right in there. The thing has been excavated. You can go into ancient Corinth and see stuff and understand the background which helps even more. So we're doing that on Wednesday nights on Zoom as well. So today I want to talk to you on the subject, the, the very first issue that he deals with with this church in this city. And it's curious that he deals with this issue first. I mean, it's hard to say whether he considers this the most important issue or not, but I mean, he's writing a letter, and he's sending this letter to this church. He's very fond of this church, uh, and it's curious that this is the first item on his mind. And remember, this is not the first letter that he wrote to them. We know that he wrote something else to them. We just don't have it. Uh, and we see in chapter 5, he refers to something that he wrote to them before, but we don't have it. So this really is like the second letter that he wrote to them, even we call it though we call it 1 Corinthians. In any case, he's going to address an issue that maybe we would think isn't so important, but to him, it's the first thing that he wants to address. And that subject is division in this church. So I call this a church divided. And you see it 
most people, when they read 1 Corinthians, they read it in chapter 1, and they say, okay, and, you know, they read what he says, and then they move on, and they think that chapter 2 isn't talking about it, and chapter 3 isn't talking about it, and chapter 4 isn't talking about it, but in truth, the whole first four chapters of 1 Corinthians are dealing with this issue, not just the first chapter. So here's what he says, um, verse 10, verse 11. And people tend to leave it here, the argument. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Before you skip over this, uh, I'm here to tell you that you should be in Chloe's household. Chloe doesn't get enough credit uh, in this letter. We don't know anything about her, uh, but she drops into this this letter. I think there is a Chloe mentioned in the book of Romans somewhere, but it's not, we don't know if it's the same Chloe. This is all we really know about her. And Paul has heard things about the church that he planted from people of the household of Chloe. You should be in Chloe's household. Because what this tells me is that the people in her household cared enough about the health of their church that they uh, had enough wisdom to say, we need to tell Pastor Paul what's going on here. Because he's miles away over in Ephesus and he doesn't know this mess, what's going on. So he, he needs to be told what's up here. And, you know, this is a really curious thing that... Paul would mention her name in a letter. In a sense, she informs him of this, you know, not so good news that's happening in this church that he found it, basically. And uh, it's amazing that he, first of all, that he puts her name in there. And second of all, that she and members of her household were, were wise enough to do this. Because, uh, you know, what often happens is, is there's a lack of transparency in these kinds of things. And if someone has enough courage to, you know, say, look, there's something going on here in, that's affecting the health of this church, the name is never mentioned, you know, to protect the person. Paul, no, he doesn't care. He's going to put her name out there. And apparently, they all know who she is, and he's going to be extremely transparent. And folks, this is why I say you all need to be in Chloe's household. There should be a ministry called Chloe's household. And people in Chloe's household, they don't put up with gossip. They don't put up with division. They don't put up with any of this stuff. If they hear it, it's made known. They don't sweep it under the rug. They don't think it's nothing. They hear these kinds of toxic things, and they bring it up to the surface. Why? Because they care about the health of their church. Don't confuse this with gossip, 
This is not gossip. This is trying to bring out something to, in this case, a leader in the church, key figure in the church, in order to deal with toxicity. Thank God for people who are in Chloe's household. So what's the issue here? Uh, and he says, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. And another, I follow Apollos. And another, I follow Cephas. And Cephas is a Greek name for Peter. And still another, I follow Christ. Now this looks a little weird to us as to you know what could have been going on here. And he, he tries to correct it immediately. You know, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Um, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Verse 17, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross be emptied of its power. And he seems to try to argue about... Um, you know, the wisdom, man's wisdom is, is uh, inferior to, uh, to Christ and so on. And we, we, we leave it there and then we move on to chapter 2. Problem with that is that he also brings it up in chapter 3. So, you know, his mind is probably still there in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, he says the same thing. He says, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Mere infants, he says. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready for it. You're still worldly. There's jealousy among you. There's quarreling among you. You're worldly. You're acting just like mere humans. One says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings. In other words, are you not just behaving the way that everybody else does with this business of I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, I follow Jesus, you know? And so we look at this and we get a little confused and we say, well, what's really going on there? Well, I mean, one idea, for sure this is, this is implied in what's going on here, uh, and I'll, I'll term it rock star Christianity where you know they're looking at these these different men who who have had leadership roles in their church uh we know that uh, apollos spent some time in corinth we can see this in acts chapter 18 cephas peter was all over the place so for sure he would have had inroads into uh, the city of corinth and of course paul was kind of the founder of the church and so uh, this idea of venerating these men and putting them up on these kinds of pedestals and making them like superior and almost turning them into what we would use in our term today, like rock stars, you know, and, and for sure we see that in the culture today. We see uh, this kind of um, uh, presentation of Christianity where it's based on glory and stardom and you have you know pastors and teachers and singers and so on and they they this like a meteoric 
following and you know they've got bodyguards and and they fly around in jets and this kind of thing and you know wear $500 running shoes and whatever and you know it's sort of this stardom uh, spectacular feel to these leaders and this folks can you know this can be a really dangerous thing when we venerate people to to that extent and put them into this kind of superstar category where they can do no wrong I mean you, you know you surf around on the internet you're gonna see all kinds of stuff like this folks like I've seen I've seen clips of people literally bowing down to these 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 human leaders you know and they'll bow down to them and the leader will touch their he head or something like it's and look at this and say man this is extreme this is dangerous dangerous kind of stuff and you know to some extent there are people who are extremely gifted and they they rise to leadership and they have huge amounts of people following them and they didn't ask for it and it just happens uh, and, but there are others and they may aspire to it. And when it happens, it becomes part of their persona as a leader and part of their identity as a leader. Um, a good example of the right way of handling that kind of notoriety is the late Billy Graham. If you've never heard of Billy Graham before, you should you know, Google him and watch any sermon ever that Billy Graham ever preached. Uh, you know, this is the man who filled stadiums all around the world, the man who was a personal counsel to several presidents of the United States, a man whose name in his era was known around the world. Millions and millions of people uh, all around the world. And uh, Graham was interesting in that he did not ask for this following, but he didn't play into it. He didn't he didn't get too big for his britches, as they say. Uh, he didn't, you know, allow this to get to his head and remained humble and continued to live in integrity until he died. But there are some leaders, and they literally turn and trans the, the, the glory and the affluence and everything literally turns them into something that maybe they didn't plan. So you do have this kind of rock star Christianity that is a dangerous, dangerous trend. But I think there are other things that are going on here in this church uh, as well. When you think about these statements that they're making, you know, I follow this leader and I follow this leader and I follow this leader. It can be confusing to us because we say, well, aren't you supposed to follow leadership in the church? I mean, doesn't Paul even teach that? And he certainly does teach that. So what's going on here then? And in a sense, you have to watch it happen to fully understand it. And I've been in the ministry for more than 20 years now, full-time, straight, uh, you know, big church and, and uh, relatively small church, you know, just talking numbers, big and small, and been around, been to many different churches, preached in a couple of churches in different countries. They're kind of the same. <laughs> been in different places in Canada. They're all kind of the same. You know, the, the flavor may be different and all that, but the heart of people is generally the same everywhere you go. 
and interesting, even if you go to a different country, different language, different culture, the heart of people is generally the same. And what happens, and it's easier to see in a church with a larger structure, and you've seen this, I'm sure, in your workplace, uh, you know, non-churchy environment, I'm sure you've seen this. And what happens is you, you get a, a division that happens within the team. And I had it happen to me, I mean, I worked for half a dozen pastors probably when I was in, in big church for, you know, 15 and a half years. And without question, I think with every single one of those pastors, there were people who would come to me and they would say things about the pastor, the lead pastor, who was my boss. And they would go like this to me about that person. Interesting. Or they would go to somebody else about me. And they would try to gain an audience uh, with that type of criticism, right? And that's a pretty brazen move, right? Because the person thinks, well, I can trust so-and-so with this information, with this criticism, and this person is not going to go to the boss and say, hey, this person's out of line. I want you to know I corrected them, but here's what they said. You know, and so are you Chloe's household or not there? And it puts you in a really interesting position. But without question, I think every single leader that I worked for, there were people who came to me with negative talk, criticism about somebody else, come to me. About the pastor, come to me. You know, it's interesting, um, uh, the expectation, and when you're, when you're an amateur at this, you know, the expectation of the person is, I will win you over with my story. I will win you over on an emotional level with my story. And uh, it, then we will have a kind of an alliance, uh, you know, as if it's some sort of game of survivor or something. And you see how these kinds of divisions start to form. And when you're hearing this kind of thing and you're an amateur at handling it, you buy the story. So-and-so said this about me. So-and-so did this to me. So-and-so did this to me. Or if it's the pastor, the pastor did this to me. The pastor didn't look at me nicely. The pastor scowled at me. The pastor's child did this. The pastor's spouse did this. Oh, that's just terrible. And I was so hurt and you know, you, the, the idea is you're supposed to grab on emotionally. Oh, that's terrible what that person did to you. Oh, that's terrible what so-and-so did to you. Boy, that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. <laughs> Boom, right away, you, there you're off to a bad foot. The right thing to do when you're in a situation like that is to listen. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And um, so let me ask you a question. Have you uh, talked to the person who you're offended at? Have you gone to that person individually and said, hey, you know, you looked at me crossways, or you said this to me, or you didn't say that to me, or, you know, you didn't shake my hand, or whatever, you know? Have you um, gone to the person? The answer, always, 100% of the time is, well, of course not. And that's where the conversation stops. Okay, then, 
you go to that person because I don't want to hear what you're saying about the person behind their back like that. You go to that person and you work it out with the person first. <gasps> but I can't do that. So, well, if you can't do that, then why did you come see me and tell me? <laughs> oh, and let me remind you, that person who you're talking about that way, just remember that there's a possibility that you will spend eternity with that person. And God having the sense of humor that he does, he might put that person's house right next to yours. So you might well try to make it right with that person before you come to me. That's what you do when you're part of Chloe's household, you see. And so uh, this is how seeds of division form and people, and it can start very, very innocently. It can start over a conversation. It can start over a, uh, a dinner. It can start over a lunch. It can start at a prayer meeting. It can start in settings like that, a choir practice. It can start in settings like that where this stuff starts to happen. And nobody stops it. And nobody says, hey, I don't want to hear that stuff. You've got something to say about so-and-so? Go and say it to them. Don't come talk to me. I don't want to hear it. And, you know, and again, the amateur pastor will, will not do that. The amateur pastor will get themselves in a bind. The more seasoned pastor will stop the conversation, say, you go and you talk to that person. That's what you do first. There's someone in the Bible who encouraged that behavior. Go and talk to the, the person first. You know who it was? Starts with a J. We sing about him all the time. It was Jesus who said that. Your brother offends you? Go to your brother. Don't come to me. Go to your brother. Don't go to Facebook. Go to your brother. Don't go to the pastor. Go to your brother. Go and tell him. Don't make an issue of it where it doesn't need to be an issue. Put your big boy pants on. Put your big girl pants on. Get a little bit of backbone. Take a deep breath and go and talk to that person and deal with your thing. And probably if you do it the right way, that's where it stops because you're going to have to spend eternity with that person. And by the way, they are going to have to spend eternity with you because you're not so perfect either. Right? So this is the, this is the way that it's supposed to be, but sometimes there are these seeds of division that happen. And when these alliances start to form, when people ally themselves with different leaders in a church context, in a non-church context, in, a, in an organization, in a business, you have a recipe for destruction. Absolute destruction. I've seen it in big church. I've seen it in small church. Even in a church our size, which is a very, very simple structure. Very simple. The structure is so simple, you probably say it has no structure. I mean, in our, in our structure, you've got one staff person, me. That's it. So, uh, you know, so I do all the stuff that I do. My wife, who's not here because she's over in screen 11, she runs the whole kids thing. All the volunteers, the curriculum, the organization, all of that stuff, she runs the whole thing. So, then, okay, well, she, I don't pay her for that. She's not paid for that. She 
does it because she likes me, at least I think, <laughs> right? So, oh no, but she does it for God, right? So she, she, she's over there. Uh, we have a, a very small, what we call here a pastor's council or a church board in some contexts that you very rarely hear anything about. Some of them are in the room. Wedlin is here. Elaine is here. Uh, Jonathan is here online. And Ezra's with the kids. So they work behind the scenes, help me with the administration, uh, running of the church, and so on, this kind of sort of boring stuff. Uh, but they're, they're the, in a sense, they're kind of like the Chloe's as well, you know? They're, they're concerned about the health of the church. Uh, and then you have the membership. And the membership are the people who, who have formally said, you know, I want to, uh, you know, formalize my commitment to this church. So it's not just I come sometimes, I go sometimes, whatever. No, I'm willing to sign on the line and say I'm a member of this church. I'm accountable to this church. I give my time. I give my talent. I give my treasure. I'm committed to this church. I'm going to talk more about membership in a couple of weeks and give you a chance to, to do that. It's really, really easy in our church. I don't talk about it a lot, but I probably should. Uh, Ezra's with the kids. Posner, who's not here with the kids. Ezra's wife, Robin, with the kids. They lead the kids. But that's it. That's the structure. But even in a structure like that, you can get this kind of stuff going on. You can get this kind of stuff. And I will tell you, folks, my wife and I did not plant this church to tolerate those kinds of things. I will tell you right now, if you come to me with that kind of chatter, you will be stopped. And I expect that if you make this church your home and you hear that kind of chatter, you will put a stop to it. You say, nope, don't want to hear it. Go talk to so-and-so. And you will you know, actually put what Jesus said into practice. And when people do that, great things can happen because you build a healthy environment rather than a toxic one. I have had to uh, confront people over the years in big church and small church many times on this issue. And usually, I'd say 99.5% of the time, when people are confronted on this type of behavior, this is what they do. They leave and they go to another church and do the same thing. You know what I do when I know they're going to another church? Pick up the phone. Hey, pastor, somebody come into your church that you need to know about. So-and-so. Because I'm part of Chloe's household. And I just need to warn you, pastor, you need to be careful about so-and-so. Because they're going to try to do things. And, you know, we didn't put up with it here. So I hope you won't put up with it there. See, and when you do this, that's how people grow up. And in a sense, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, you've got to grow up. And this is a first priority. Again, is this the number one issue on his list? The most important? Maybe yes, maybe no. But it's the first thing that he answers. And he argues throughout the first four chapters as to why you need to stay away from this kind of thing whether it's elevating people to rock star status or whether it's building alliances around certain leaders. Because when you do that, I follow this one, but I don't follow this one. 
I follow Apollos. Yeah, but Paul said this. Well, I follow Apollos. And implied in there is that's the only leader that I follow. Oh, this is a problem. So Paul, he's going to argue on several fronts here. Uh, in chapter 1, he's going to argue on the wisdom line of things. And he's going to say, look, this human wisdom that you think I have, that you think Apollos has, that you think Cephas has, this human wisdom that Christ is superior to this human wisdom. And in Greek culture, human wisdom was a big deal. And so Paul is going to challenge this. Verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written from the Old Testament, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I, the intelligence of the intelligence I will frustrate. So where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God, has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? So he's saying, your wisdom is nothing. Man's wisdom is nothing. We preach Christ crucified. This is a stumbling block to Jews. This is foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So he's trying to say, we're not so smart. Don't, don't look at us as if we're wise. Look at Jesus and look at him rather than looking at us. And he will continue into chapter 2, and he'll start talking about uh, the power of the Spirit as well. Um, and, and he will say to them uh, at the beginning of, of chapter 2, and, and so it was with me. And he's saying, I'm not eloquent. I'm not wise. When I came to you, I did not come to you with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and trembling. Why are you worshiping me? Why are you venerating me? My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is where your faith should be, not on human wisdom. Thank God for a leader there who doesn't believe his own baloney, <laughs> in a sense. Paul is saying, listen, uh, and that's, a, that's a, a, an expression I'm using. He's saying, listen, I'm just human, but, but what you need to get interested in is the power of God. There is a leader, um, I'll mention his name, uh, Francis Chan. Francis Chan, good, good Bible teacher. And uh, Chan was one of these leaders who got to a place in California where he was ridiculously popular. I mean, the man said anything, the man wrote anything, and it was, he was almost bowed down to. Uh, he's just an outstanding leader and uh, a really good Bible teacher. And he got to a point where he said, I'm out, I resign, I'm leaving, goodbye. And he went to a small context 
overseas, served in obscurity, in, in a, in, in a impoverished situation and so on because he says too much there's too much of this there's too much of this glory there's too much of all of this and he just left really really interesting how he showed that type of humility when he saw that he was being venerated in this way and Paul says hey you've got to be interested in God's power not again in man's wisdom there's nothing to man's wisdom. Get off of that. You've got to get interested in the power of God. And then he'll, he'll continue. He'll go on with this. Chapter 3, and this is the criticism that we read before. You, you know, you're not people who live by the Spirit, he says to them. You're not living by the power of the Spirit. You're worldly. You're like little babies that don't grow up. I mean, it's very, very strong, but this is Pastor Paul. And by the way, I mean, you, you read these letters and you may well think to yourself, man, this, this fellow is just too harsh. Imagine if he were your pastor. <laughs> I mean, he was harsh, folks. Like, he was direct. He was uh, politically incorrect. I don't know how many churches would like him, to be honest. He's very, very direct. And in some senses, I mean, it's a bigger subject. Jesus is quite direct as well. And uh, so here he's, he's, he's correcting them. He's being strong with them. You, you know, I, I gave you milk, not solid food. You were not ready for it. You're still not ready. You're worldly. There's jealousy among you. There's quarreling among you. Folks, I will be honest with you. I'll be very honest with you. I will live a few years shorter because of dealing with jealousy, quarreling, infighting, division than I would have. I'll probably live like five years less than I should because of the toll that it took on me. I have seen it in, in settings that it got so bad that people were calling cops and lawyers, folks. I've seen it that bad. I've sat in front of these folks and heard the venom and heard the the... It's venom, folk. I mean, the, the, the bitterness and the division and the quarreling and the jealousy and the utter hatred for one another within the body of Christ. These people were Christian people, folks. They would, they would I mean, very authentic in their Christianity, in their own minds, and yet the absolute toxicity. And I will tell you, folks, you know, you think... You think that, that pastors just have to, you know, do this sort of Sunday gig and that's it. Well, it's a really nice job. Uh-uh, folks, this is the easy part. <laughs> this is the icing on the cake. Dealing with people and growing people and their personalities and their own carnality and all of these things into mature disciples of Jesus. This is a tough job. And it is difficult when you see people who hate people. God help us. I mean, God help the modern church. You know, the society still thinks that, that we have some good to play. That's why you get a tax receipt. I'm being very blunt honest with you this morning, okay? You can't do anything else with this subject. You, you know, you still get a tax receipt. You know why you get a tax receipt? Because the tax man, at least, thinks that we're good for society. I don't know if the government thinks it anymore, but the tax man does. 
That's why you get a tax receipt for giving to your charity, your church, because we're supposed to be a charity. We're supposed to be good for society. God help us if we can't even be good to one another. Do you see what I'm saying? And this is why Paul is so direct and so, so strong with this. And he says, you're just, you're following these people. You've got these divisions. You're following us. You've got it all wrong. What is Apollos? Verse 5. What is Paul? Only servants. Only servants. In Christian leadership, the stronger the leader, the greater the servant. It's not the reverse. Rock star Christianity, the stronger the leader, the less of a servant. But here, the stronger the leader, the more of a servant. I love this picture because the leader is lower. The leader is lower than the people. That's one of the reasons I love speaking in this forum, in this room, because you're higher than me. I've gone to churches where the, the pulpit is like a thousand feet higher than the people. And you're literally looking down on the people like this. <laughs> you, you stupid people. You know, it almost looks like, I, I can't do that. Folks, if I get asked to speak at a church and it's like that, I get really uncomfortable. I love this setting where you're above, right? The greater the leader, the greater the servant in God's economy. So he's trying to, to get them to change their whole, their whole view. He says, we're only servants. Listen, the Lord gave us a task. That's it. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. So the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But only God who makes things grow. Oh, what a great, great wise leader Paul is to write this. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service, and you are God's field, God's building. You, use, use are God's field, God's building. So get your attention focused on the right thing. And finally, in chapter 4, it's complicated because he gets quite personal with them and uh, is kind of almost arguing back and forth with them. Uh, and it makes sense. I mean, he knew them well. But he's trying to make them understand that the life of him and Zephus and so on as apostles is not something that uh, makes them better or anything like that. And he says, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display, like at the end of a procession, this is be a Roman procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, and we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We're brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, he says. Harsh language, the garbage of the world. 
right up to this moment. Do you really want to be an apostle? This is a call that these men have. It's not an aspiration. I get very nervous when I, again, when I see this type of this sort of rock star Christianity and so-and-so is calling themselves an apostle. They're an apostle now. Really? I don't want to be an apostle, folks. I don't want that responsibility. That's some serious, serious business. I do believe that the gift, the call of apostleship is alive and well today. But most of the people who have it, you don't even know their names. They're, in, they're uh, overseas serving in, 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 in poverty. They're, they're, they're writing books that you never hear of. They're, they're very obscure. They're pastoring churches that you never heard of. They're not on TV. They're nowhere. And yet they have this call where they seem to be sent forth with a message. And this idea of, of being an apostle, a herald, is to be someone who's sent forth with a message, sometimes into a different culture, sometimes into a totally, totally foreign place to them. But yet they're willing to go there with their message because they feel called. It's a difficult thing, folks. And it's not something that someone aspires to. And I think in the modern age, people get all, oh, an apostle. If I go see apostle so-and-so at Church of the Holy Rollers, then the person will pray for me and I'll be healed because they're an apostle. That's not what apostleship is, folks. Uh, the central understanding of the word is someone who is sent with a message now, in their day, in the, the original apostolic gang, you know, they, they, they would do that. They would, they would pray for people. They would do things. They would see things happen in the name of Jesus. We would see it later on. Even people who weren't part of the 12 were called apostles even after the 12 were done. So we know that the gift is alive and well, but if people say, well, it's all about some sort of supernatural thing and signs and wonders and all of that, oh. We, we, we've, we've lost it. Again, we're venerating people and worshiping people rather than putting the power of God first and putting Jesus as the center. These men were called. They didn't aspire to it. They were called. And there's a difference. So, you know, the, the, I suppose the decision that we have to make today, and uh, who's in the room? Um, Nick's in the room. I think Viano might be in the room. You, you guys want to come up and and play and uh, grace if you want to you want to sing as well it's up to you but i think the application for us today is folks like th this is still a young church this is a young church this church is eight eight years old will be nine or starting the ninth year in september that's nothing in church economy that's nothing in a sense it's still at the beginning phases and you know what what i would love to see folks and i think that it's most interesting for people to be part of a community where there's transparency, where there's health, where toxicity is spotted and confronted, and where we say, hey, we desire to live the Jesus way, the Christian life. And this is not always an easy thing to do. It takes more courage to live the Jesus way. It's easy to live the worldly way. It's harder to live the Jesus way, but it's healthy to live the Jesus way. 
That's how you experience life eternal is when you do things his way. And when you do that, and you can even take these things and bring them out into your marketplace, into your place of business, into your schools, you'll see it works. If you do it the Jesus way, people be shocked. You had enough guts to confront this person privately rather than to go and to tell everybody else about it and form a little schism in your own place of business. No, you did it the Jesus way. Wow, why'd you do that? Well, because I follow Jesus and that's what he said. So when you live that way and you build a community that is that transparent, that's something that I want to be a part of, don't you? Father, I pray for each person who's in the room today, people who are watching online, and uh, Lord, you, you, you lay it out for us very straight, and uh, we have this, uh, this letter from Pastor Paul and his kind of exhortations and his challenges, uh, but I pray, Lord, for the, the, the practical stuff here. Uh, even in our own church community, still relatively young, very young, really. And, but people who are going to go out tomorrow morning and they're going to go out into their place of work, into their businesses, and they're living in this. And they see these kinds of things and they function in these kinds of things and the politicking going back and forth and the, the things that are said about people and the even gets to levels of harassment uh, where people are going into their own place of work under tremendous stress and because there are these factions and these quarrels and this jealousy and these kinds of things that happen oh god whether it be in the in the community of faith or whether it be out there in the marketplace may we live the jesus way lord may we uh may we be people who would be as it were part of chloe's household may we live in a transparent fashion may we live in a courageous fashion May we seek the, the, the good of, the, of our co-worker and the good of our you know, fellow uh, brother and sister in church. And, and Lord, may we uh, seek to put you first through all of that and, and put you first in the cross and the power of the Spirit and recognize, Lord, that uh, we're all human. We're all human. And ultimately, our focus has got to be upon you. Lord, I pray for people who are in this room and they've been hurt. They've been burned by the church. They've experienced the pain of, of, uh, of being stabbed in the back uh, unexpectedly. And they've experienced exactly the results of toxic division and jealousy and quarreling. I pray, God, that, that our church would be a place of healing, a place of health, a place of, of, uh, 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 of wholeness, a place where... Lord, when we gather together, we would be about the business of encouraging one another. We pray to that end today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you today. Any guests that are in the room, I'll be right in the front. Would love to meet you. Remember to pick up your kids in screen 11. And the youth are, I think, up in the mezzanine, but they will, uh, they will be out shortly. God bless you, everybody.